Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone I have sinned, and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. The second reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, and you'll find that on page 965 of the Church Bibles. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple complex to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterous, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for reading the Bible so well. It's great to hear the Bible read well. Um, do turn back to Psalm 51. That's our text for this morning, uh, if you've turned away. Uh, but as you do that, let me, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that your word is living and active. Help us, Lord, this morning to humble ourselves before your word. Show us our sin, we pray. Show us the sin that is hidden. 
Show us the sin that uh, we've hardened ourselves to. And help us, Lord, to see our Savior and live for him. Amen. I need to start with a confession. I nearly um, spoke up when Robin was doing her kids' talk. Uh, It's a crime that I committed when I was about... I think about 11 or 12. No one knows about it. My mother doesn't know about it. Uh, My wife found out about it when she read through my talk during the week. The crime scene was a a corner shop in the town that I grew up up in. Uh, I was in there buying a comic book. And there was a a queue of people uh, as we queued towards the till. And uh, I had this long... uh, winter overcoat on. It's cold in England. And this winter overcoat had long sleeves. And as I was waiting in the queue, my hands were dangling down by my side. And I felt this uh, smooth, silvery uh, surface of a chocolate egg uh, just by my hand. Anyway, I thought, I just grabbed hold of it. Just grabbed hold of it, paid for the comic book, and then went out the shop. And that's where the fun started. This guilt came over me. I walked down the street and I was convinced that people knew. I was convinced that police were after me. I saw a policeman talking on his walkie-talkie and thought they had this operation to get this 12-year-old kid off the streets into jail. At the CCTV cameras, I was convinced that they were looking for me. Anyway... I ended up going back to the shop. My heart was pounding, too much, too much sweat coming down my head. And I went back to the shop. I said to the shopkeeper, I'm sorry, I walked out without paying for this egg. I um, brushed over the details of how the egg got out of the shop. And um, uh, said I was sorry, paid for the egg, went out of the shop, ate the egg. I then realized that I'd actually forgotten my change for the comic book and had given him four times the amount of money anyway. A a, a terrible crime. Um, Guilt is like that, isn't it? Guilt is... It can cripple you. It can come over you in a wave. And it can sap your joy. If you're a Christian here, uh, you'll know the reality of guilt at your sin. You know that Christ has died for you. You know that he has died once for all. We know that there is no fear in... uh, There is... um, Uh, We know that there is no guilt in life, no fear in death, but yet our guilt at our sin just comes at us all the time. We're children of God, and yet we do the things that we know God hates. Uh, We love the things that we know God hates. And with this sin, with the sin that plagues our life from day to day, comes guilt often, doesn't it? And the thing about guilt... It robs you of your joy. It it robs you of that joy that you had when you first came to know Jesus. It robs you of the joy that you had when you first knew that you were were forgiven. I wonder whether that's you. We heard about that person who'd hardened themselves to sin. Charlie said she'd hardened herself to to slander gossip. I wonder whether that's you. I wonder whether you're, you're feeling... That lack of joy that you first felt when you first came to know Jesus. You've hardened yourself to sin. And perhaps you've come to church this morning, but only just. You're terrified uh, of someone asking you how your week has been. Or perhaps somebody has asked you how you are and you said, I'm fine, thanks. But it's been the worst week on record because sin has plagued your life. And the guilt 
of that sin is, has robbed you of joy. I know sometimes I feel that uh, I just cannot believe that I've fallen into that sin again. Perhaps that's you. It crushes you, doesn't it? You, you look around at everyone else and you think, oh, everyone is so sorted, I'm the odd one out. And sometimes you wish you could just rewind to that day when you first knew Jesus and first felt that joy of knowing sins forgiven. As we look at Psalm 51, you should look at Psalm 51 and know that you're not alone. Just have a look with me at verse 3. My sin is always before me. Verse 8, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me. It's a really intense psalm, isn't it? As it was read out, you can almost feel the sweat coming off the pages. You can put your hands on the pages and almost feel the raised heartbeat of a man who is surrounded by his sin, very conscious of his sin. He feels crushed by his sin. He feels crushed by the guilt at his sin. Perhaps you know that feeling all too well. The psalm goes further, verse 5. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. He's not saying that, his mu- that he was somehow uh, conceived in sin, that his, his mum was a prostitute or uh, which he was conceived in a, a sinful act. What he's saying here is that he was born broken, that he can't do anything but sin. He's like the, um, he's like the, bro- he's like the, the lawn bowl that just cannot hit the target when you're trying to get it straight. He cannot obey God because sin is in his DNA. See, Psalm 51 is the song of a sinner. All the um, uh, commentaries call it a lament, and the Bible boffins call it a penitentiary psalm. If you want to impress someone, say, I was reading a penitentiary psalm the other day. Uh, But this is a sin song. It's a sin song from the mouth of a sinful king, a king who is trapped. Hopefully you spotted the circumstances that prompted this song. It's there at the beginning. Now, have you got, um, under Psalm 51, have you got written in your Bibles, a prayer for restoration? Have you got that? Uh, That's not in the original Hebrew, so ignore that. But the bit below it is, right? It says this, for the choir director, a Davidic psalm, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. See, David penned this song. King David, uh, God's warrior king, penned this song after he got rumbled for committing adultery uh, with Bathsheba. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 11. I'll just uh, recount it for us. Uh, So David is God's warrior king, and he is skiving off battle. He should have been in battle, but he's at home. And he is walking. He's walking on the roof of his palace when he spots a beautiful lady taking a bath. He says, who's this woman? And uh, he finds out that this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his officers in his army. Now, not deterred by the fact that this uh, woman was married, he sends word, he sends messengers to her to get her. There's no uh, romance, there's no chat-up lines. He sends messengers to her to get her. He gets, he sends for her, he gets her, he sleeps with her. And Bathsheba gets pregnant. Now we're in a stick. Now we're in, uh, in a stickle. 
He tries to cover over his sin. So what he does is he sends for Uriah from the battlefield to come home so that he can sleep with his wife, so that she will, uh, so that it will look like that the baby is her husband's. Uh, but Uriah is a good man. He comes back and he is too concerned about his men in battle. And he doesn't sleep with his wife. He sleeps with the, the, in the servants' quarters. And he goes back to battle without sleeping with his wife. David uh, resorts to plan B and has Uriah killed in battle. One of his own men killed in battle. Uh, the news comes that Uriah has died. He marries Bathsheba. They have the honeymoon baby and the crime is covered over. A real snowball of sin. You can see why he writes what he does. David needed uh, to cover it up. But uh, to Samuel 11.27, comment on his crime. It says this, However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Understatement in the least, isn't it? On one level, David got away with it. He covered up the crime. The adultery was covered up and contained. But Nathan the prophet comes from God and says, God knows what you've done. God knows what you've done. We can be like that, can't we? We can, see, we can somehow try and contain our sin with secrecy. If no one knows, it's, it's not real. But God knows our sin. He knows every murderous thought we've had. He knows every hurtful word we've spoken. He knows every lustful gaze we've ever gazed. See, God knows your sin and he knows my sin. It's terrifying, isn't it? To think that God knows the lot. I was so ashamed that, that I could only talk about this uh, petty crime when I was a kid before I became a Christian. There's so much more serious stuff that I could have said to you. See, secrecy offers us protection uh, for our reputation. But it doesn't offer protection from God. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? And um, uh, Robert Conan Doyle, the bloke that wrote Sherlock Holmes, famously um, was a practical joker. You may have heard this story. He wrote uh, letters to 12 of his mates, uh, telegrams, I think, back in the day when they had telegrams. Uh, he wrote telegrams saying, flee, all is revealed. And all 12 of his mates left the country. See, we can do that, can't we, when our sin is exposed. We can flee from God and deal with our sin independent of God. We can deny it and say, oh, it's not that bad. It didn't hurt anyone. Or we can ignore it and think, oh, it'll go away. It's just a chapter. It's not a problem. Or we can take the Bunnings Warehouse approach and try fixing it ourselves. Fix it by throwing good deeds and religion at the problem in an attempt to readdress the scales, hoping that the scales will tip in our favor. We can do that by comparing ourselves to other people, just like uh, in the parable of the Pharisees and the tax collector. Did you notice that? God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. We can do that, can't we? I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't slept with anyone's wife. We can compare ourselves to other people. But that's not King David's approach. You see, Psalm 51 is in the Bible so that we would sing this psalm. And as we sing this psalm, we would feel the weight of our sin before a holy God. Psalm 51 is also in the Bible so that we would sing this psalm 
and know how to deal with our sin and not be crippled by that guilt that can often wash over us. So I've got three quick observations to make on this song that should help us sing this song. Firstly, that it is a song of admission, a song for cleansing, and a song for transformation. And by complete fluke, they are an acronym, ACT. So you remember them. We haven't got an overhead. Remember them, ACT. Admission, uh, cleansing, transformation. So first point, it's a song of admission, verses 2 to 5. Blot out my rebellion, wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. For I'm conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. Got three words there for uh, sin, guilt, rebellion, and sin. They are three words that articulate mankind's biggest problem. See, I am guilty before a holy God. Rebellion is hardwired into me from the womb. I walk on a path of sin. I wonder whether you noticed David's definition of sin. He says, against you, you alone, I have sinned. Sin is relational. It's an offense against God. Who can forgive sin Who can forgive sin but God alone, the Pharisees say, when Jesus heals the paralytic in Mark 2. See, sin is against God. Uh, But our world thinks that doesn't matter. You know, killing someone, that's evil, right? Hurting someone, that is bad. But hurting God, that doesn't matter. And Christians, we can fall into that trap, can't we? We can fall into that trap of thinking uh, that sin isn't about God. You think, oh, hurt anyone, rationalizing it, saying, I was just fulfilling a need, or it makes me happy, so it can't be that bad a thing. But David comes before his God because he knows that sin is against God. I want to ask you, when was the last time you came before God and admitted your sin? We've kind of got this life coach culture in Sydney, haven't we? Where it's good to get everything out in the open and, and, and tell your problems to a mate. To declare what's on your heart or in your head. I wonder when the last time you did that to God was. When you admitted what is secret. Admitted what your heart has become hardened to. See, David knows that God knows him perfectly. And he knows that God is his perfect, all-knowing judge. says, verse 5, you are blameless when when you judge. So he throws himself on the mercy of God. He admits his sin to God, the things that no one else knows. And we need to do the same. We need to sing a song of admission. Secondly, this is a a song of cleansing, verses 6 to 9. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. The language that he's using here is from the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. Hyssop was this plant that was involved in a cleansing ritual in Leviticus. And the big point of of Leviticus is that because of our sin, human beings are not fit to be in the presence of a holy God. We are unclean and need cleansing. Uh, David knows it. And that's what he's getting at here when he says that. Wash me whiter than white. He says he needs a good scrub before he can come to God. 
There's a, a, a famous story of uh, England winning the football 1966 Soccer World Cup. They have won something. Uh, and the, 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 um, Bobby Moore, who was the captain, it was interviewed about receiving the World Cup from the Queen. And he says, how was it? What was the day like? And he says, all I could think about when I was approaching the Queen to take the cup, the World Cup from her was that she was wearing white gloves and I had hands covered in dirt. You can see the footage. You can see him like scrubbing his hands, trying to get his hands clean. Well, like Bobby Moore, we cannot approach God on our own. We cannot approach God on our own. We are not fit to be in his presence. Of course, our mates will say that God is love. He accepts us as we are. He won't worry about that. We think we've got this understanding with God that our mates love us. So God will somehow like us. That He'll see through those faults. But God cannot sweep sin under the carpet. If he could, he would be sweeping away every massacre, every murder, every piece of evil and violence that gets us worked up and gets us campaigning in the newspapers. God is the perfect judge and he cannot wipe sin under, under the carpet. We are unclean and we are not fit to be in his presence. See, this uncleanness, it causes this relational estrangement that you just feel when, as you read through the psalm. David feels like his bones have been crushed. He knows that there is a lack of joy and there is sadness in his life. Perhaps you know that all too well. Perhaps you've been running from God. Perhaps you've hardened yourself from what you need cleansing from. We need to be on our knees asking God to cleanse us. We need to sing a song of cleansing. Third observation this morning. Uh, This is a song of transformation, verses 10 to 13. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and the sinners will return to you. See, David sees that the only way forward is if he is completely transformed. The ultimate makeover. The heart was seen as the control center for the, of the person in, in David's day. And David says he needs a new heart. David's very aware that he has lost his joy. And he needs a new joy. A restored joy. He asks God to restore him. I wonder whether you believe that God can transform you, that God can restore you. Too often when we're disheartened, we think that God is impotent when it comes to changing us, when it comes to uh, dealing with someone like me. But God is not like that. We can get such, get in a muddle with sin, can't we? And think, if I just dig deeper or if I put enough spiritual disciplines in my life, then that will sort things out. Well, those things will help. But only God can change us. We can put religion in our lives. Well, my, my trick is, is that I get up early. If I'm struggling with something and I'm self-reliant, I get up earlier. Uh, till the point where my alarm's going off at half past four and, and, and I get so grumpy in the afternoon. Uh, that it is uh, that the reality check hits. We need to be on our knees 
asking God to change us. Tim Chester, in his excellent book, it's on the bookshelf, says this, when we try to prove ourselves by our good works, we're saying, in effect, that the cross wasn't enough. We need to be asking God to transform us and letting him do his work. We need to sing a song of transformation act. Now, the problem as you get to the end of this psalm, and I've been uh, wrestling with this, is that you get to the end of this psalm and, and you can see all those things. You can see that he, we are to admit our sin. We see, we're to see that we are to ask for cleansing and, and transformation. But you get to the end of this psalm and it's just not satisfying, is it? See, there's, there, there's no ending to this psalm. There's no uh, resolution. You, you soak up the misery of David, but there's no resolution. Unless you see the weird bit at the end of this psalm, just in verses 18, there's this weird bit which, which is, takes a bit of wrestling with. So look with me at verse 18. David says, in your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. It looks like, as you read it, it looks like David's drifted off and started dreaming about construction. But what he's saying when he says cause Zion to prosper is that he is saying, uh, King David is saying in a way that, he only, that, that you only hear in the Psalms, is that he is asking God to establish his king. Back in Psalm 2, God has promised that he will establish his king on Mount Zion. His perfect king, his permanent king, who will rescue his people from their sin who will rule his people and transform them. And what David is saying here in this weird verse 18, is he's saying, establish your king, prosper Zion, because there's a correlation between who is on the throne and what God's people are like. When David wrote this psalm, uh, Jesus hadn't hit the earth. And it is not until Jesus hit the earth that God's king hits history. This king over Zion. See, this psalm is not just a psalm of admission, of cleansing, of transformation. It's a psalm of salvation. Because you read this psalm and it is unsatisfying. We're meant to feel the tension. We're meant to feel the weight that this prayer hasn't been answered. Because Jesus is the punchline. Jesus is the happy ending. Jesus is the the resolution. Jesus is God's king on Zion. You see, Jesus, he pardons because he serves the sentence for our sin. His blood washes us whiter than white before a holy God so that we can stand in his presence. His spirit poured out on the Christian His spirit is the one that gives us the new heart and means that we can say no to sin and we can live a transformed life. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I'll read Psalm 51 and feel the weight of it. Feel the claustrophobia in this psalm. Feel the weight of your sin. Look at the cross and see what your sin deserves. But read Psalm 51 and see what you've been saved from. Look at the cross and see how you've been saved and what you've been saved from. 
Our sin weighs us down, but we do not need to feel guilty. Satan uses guilt, but it is a second-hand weapon. See, when we realize what we've been saved from and how we've been saved, well, that restores the joy of our salvation, doesn't it? And we should be joyful. We should be singing. I'm going to finish by reading Romans 5. And then we're going to have a a time of silence just to bring those things before God. Perhaps the things that we know we've hardened ourselves to, the things that we've been running from. And then we're going to say a confession together. I'm going to read Romans 5, a time of silence, then we're going to say a confession. Romans 5, 8. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received this reconciliation through him.